Welcome to an episode of the podcast Art Insiders New York. My name is Anders Holst. The theme of the podcast is New York, with a focus on behind-the-scenes conversations with fascinating people who are making an impact in the world of art, design and architecture. Today we take a closer look at the online auction market for mid-century design, something that has become very popular in recent years and drawn in a younger generation of collectors. One of the challenges of selling any form of art online is of course transparency. How do I know that the price is right? And perhaps more important, how do I know what is real and what is fake? Victoria Shaw is a certified appraiser with over 15 years experience in the world of art, antiques and auctions. Victoria has a background from working with Christie's, Appraisals.com, First Dibs and the NYU School of Professional Studies. We have invited Victoria to talk about the online market for mid-century design and the fascinating and often intriguing approach of determining the provenance of design objects. So you are essentially a forensic detective here in this world of art. I think that what has happened over the years as uh, the market has shifted from being a in-person transaction to an online transaction, it's become increasingly important to have as much information as possible in order to know if the item that you're buying is not only correctly described in terms of the designer who created it, um, but also the manufacturer that was a part of that process, as well as the date. Um, because what happened with many of these designs, a design, for instance, could have been created by the designer in the 40s, but then, of course, that piece was re-editioned again in the 60s, 70s, 80s, even today. And so it's very important when somebody is looking into purchasing a piece, if they know, number one, if they're buying something that is vintage or brand new. And not to say that there's anything wrong with buying something brand new. Uh, there's certainly nothing wrong with that. But if you are going to be collecting and you're only interested in the patina and the quality that a vintage piece will have, it's very important to do your homework and to work with people that you trust uh, so that you know you're buying something that is authentic. I see. So what is the, the basic methodology that you engage in then? Because there are, you have to have, uh, I was thinking about that, you have to almost be an anthropologist, you have to be a sort of a cultural historian, you have to go back and, and reconstruct the context here. How, yeah. how do you typically do this? Well, um, typically what happens uh, is you, you, number one, you sort of have to uh, at first consider the source of where you're buying something. For instance, the, the auction houses uh, are very, uh, there's a very you know, diverse group of auction houses that are available to us now, and they all have online platforms. Uh, some auction houses are a bit stronger with their mid-century specialists than others. Uh, some, some auction houses uh, do have the time to do, put resources towards uh, um, researching something before they take on the consignment. Uh, typically what happens with an auction house is the piece is brought in on consignment based on pho photography. And so very often what happens when the piece arrives at the auction house and it's in the warehouse, the specialists then have to go through an entirely new vetting process in order to see the piece in person to make sure that it is what they thought it was when they first assigned the pre-sale estimate. Uh, so then it goes through the next process, which is putting it online. Uh, having the photographs taken from all the right angles so that you know what you're getting, and then to compare those photographs with the description of the item. If a description of the item is a little bit too vague, 
Uh, sometimes, sometimes that's a sign that the auction house or the person who's selling it doesn't actually know the correct date. Um, and very often what you'll see is you'll see something is listed as attributed to a certain designer. And attributed to simply means that there's reason to believe that it is by that person, but unfortunately there's no proof. For instance, there's no label. Uh, there's no documentation to support that it's by that particular designer. And then uh, the other thing that sometimes happens, and we're seeing this less and less, is when we know that something is not by that designer but is simply inspired by that designer, it'll be listed as style of. Mm -hmm. And style of is, is basically saying that you have an unknown designer usually who decided to take inspiration from whatever designer was was popular at the moment and create something usually on a less expensive level, um, probably because of the materials or the construction, and they're able to sort of sort of it's sort of like that idea of when you sort of get the look of something, but you're not actually getting that piece, so mm -hmm. the, the value is much lower. You also told me uh, that you are looking for documentations that were published during mm -hmm. the time of this production. So that's, that's important to have the library. It's important yes. to have access to the data. How, how do you yes. solve that? Uh, well, there's, there's lots of ways to research uh, the, the documentation for a particular piece. We're, we're very lucky with certain, certain manufacturers uh, of certain uh, designs, for instance, um, for instance, Hans Wegner is a great example of a designer that's very, very carefully documented because his you're pieces, sitting in a Hans yes, Wegner chair. I'm thinking of him, and I'm channeling him right now, and that's probably why. Um, so we're very fortunate with somebody like him because he designed over 500 chairs in his lifetime. Uh, his designs are very well known and yeah. and have a, a very, very strong international appeal. So. He's immediately recognizable. Um, what what very often we can do though is if the um, if the piece doesn't look quite right to the uh, to the specialist, uh, usually they can sort of compare that to the documented examples, which are easily found uh, online either on the uh, various manufacturers' website. For instance, the Fritz Hansen um, manufacturers um, that that manufacturer website has the uh, the specific designs. And these pieces are still in production today. So mm -hmm. it's very easy to compare the labels of the current production to the vintage examples. Um, but very often what happens is uh, you'll find a piece online, usually on one of the online um, marketplaces, and there's just something that's just not quite right. And it's usually the, the shape of the leg or the angle of the backrest, and you know immediately that it's just not a Hans Wegner piece or it's not a Finn Yule piece. It's, it is in the style of. Mm -hmm. And you wouldn't even say attributed to because attributed to implies that there's this sort of like unknown, mysterious quantity where the pieces were not very di well documented by a designer. So because of that black hole of knowledge where we don't know, we can say attributed to and safely say that. But with pieces that are very, very well documented, it's, it's, there's no chance that you're going to say attributed to. You'll just say it's in the style of. Mm -hmm. I know that uh, some of these uh, designers, like Hans Wegner or others, um, they are very. They have very good documentation, and they are also. It's in their interest, I guess, to to, to protect their brand name and protect yes. their design and so on. But for other uh, designers who may not have that sort of well-structured approach to things, so you go back and you look at the old magazines, you look at ads, you, you yes. try to figure out what did this look like? How do yeah. you find these magazines? I mean, aren't well, they 
disappearing at a the, unfortunately, increased rate. Unfortunately, they are disappearing. Um, there are sellers on eBay, for instance, that do sell the vintage periodicals, which is extremely helpful. Probably the best for Italian design is yeah. Domus. Domus, Domus was, was really the best uh, design magazine for mid-century Italian furniture and, and, and design, mostly because it was started by Joe Ponte and it was basically a way for him to, to document not only his work but the work of his contemporaries. And hmm. so, for instance, it's not just the, um, the articles that were written in the magazine, but also the advertisements that were purchased by the manufacturers. For instance, Fontana Arte is another example of a lighting company in, in Italy uh, that's still in existence today. And you could certainly walk into their shop in Soho and see many of these amazing designs that are being re-editioned today. But there are more um, uh, one-off items and more unique items that can be found by searching through the old Domus catalogs. Mm -hmm. What the Domus uh, company did, which was very smart, is that they, they hardbound all of their periodicals. So you can actually go and purchase the reproductions of the periodicals and just, I mean, it, it's, it spans many, many years, um, but that is something that that we do use as a tool for our research. Hmm. So you're essentially trying to figure out the DNA of the object itself. Here. Yes. The, the, in general, the originals have always been much more expensive to produce because they use better quality materials. They take the extra time to make sure that something is not going to get broken in transit, that it's going to last. Yeah. Uh, and something that's made quickly and inexpensively, uh, usually in China or um, in Southeast Asia in general or South America, they tend to use uh, cheaper materials. They tend to make things just slightly more uh, based upon what is readily available in the marketplace. The, rather than having to custom build certain elements, like even a tiny finial, for mm -hmm. instance, they won't go to the trouble of having it be to their, the exact specifications of the original, they'll just find what's available and use that. And that's, that's usually the tip-off for when something's a fake. So collectors, except from talking to you and listening to your advice, they should focus on research. I definitely re recommend research. I recommend doing some research on the web, but not exclusively on the internet, mostly because there's a lot of misinformation out there, unfortunately. I do recommend working with uh, people that you trust, either galleries or appraisers, and getting as much information as possible by attending museum shows and speaking to as many people at art fairs, uh, because that way, and, and as well as the auctions, um, that way you educate yourself and you find out what the pitfalls are for a particular design, and that way you also get to find out what what are the themes when, when you do see that, for instance, you see the, something that you were recently interested in, but it keeps on coming up at auction and it's failing to sell. That's usually a, a very good sign that the market is either softening considerably mm -hmm. and the estimate was maybe too high, or the other more frightening possibility is that the market does not believe that it's correct. Mm -hmm. And that is uh, something that, the, uh, that can really only be determined after you've been following something and tracking something for a certain number of years. And it takes time to build a collection. I don't think that people should believe that they are suddenly a collector and run out and buy everything and then they're done. It does, it's, it's really a labor of love. It's something that you have to be interested in putting the time in and making the mistakes. You know, it's okay to make a mistake. You learn from those. Yeah. Um, but then of course, you know, taking that knowledge and then maybe shifting your focus in a different direction.
you've been very much involved with uh, First Dibs. Could you tell me a little bit about the story? What, what, how did they start out and what did they do mm -hmm. right uh, when uh, others did? Yeah, uh, yeah. They, they, they did a lot of things right in the beginning from the very, very first moment that they started. One of the things that they did, which I always had a lot of admiration for how they handled this, because I had been working for a competitor website, which no longer exists, uh, before I started working for First Year, First Dibs, years before I started working for First Dibs. And I think that one of the things that First Dibs did, which was very smart, is they talked to as many dealers as possible before signing them. And they were able to build a very, very strong amount of supply by not only focusing on, on dealers that were really, really at the top end, you know, participating in the very, very important art fairs, but also focusing on a middle tier market and I think that that enabled them to appeal not only to the very very serious collector as well as the interior designers and the uh, private buyers and I think that one of the things that they did which was not only did they build a very very strong supply very quickly they also were very very focused on creating a very beautiful website and that is something that their early competitor um, unfortunately was not able to do they also invested heavily in technology so that the speed of their website um, was made it so that you would see something and you would be able to click on it, get as much information about it as possible. You could then save it into a specific folder, which was very, very helpful. And then you could either contact the um, dealer directly at mm -hmm. the time, or you could purchase it online. At this point, you can only purchase uh, through First Dibs online. Um, there's less interaction with the dealer. It's done uh, purely through um, an online uh, chat uh, portal. Um, and there are other websites out there that don't require you to um, deal directly with an online transaction. Um, there's other companies that are smaller, such as Dicasso, mm -hmm. um, Incollect. Uh, you, can, you can purchase many of those same things at these other smaller websites. And I think that just proves that there is incredible health in the marketplace. And there is just a very, very strong feeling that this is the way people buy now. People don't necessarily walk into a store the way they used to, which is in some ways very, very efficient, but in other ways I feel like it's a little bit troubling for somebody like me as an appraiser because I worry about people not asking enough questions before mm -hmm. making a purchase. I worry about people not really investing in themselves to research something and to invest in their collection in the way that they could. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel like the speed of a transaction, sometimes there's some things that get lost in the shuffle. Yeah. Maybe there's not enough communication with the dealer, which means that there's less education on the behalf of the buyer. And I do think it's important to to, um, to have that le certain level of, of education, not only to look online at the what is available retail with the um, first dibs or Dicasso or Incollect, but also to research and see what's happening at the auctions. Yeah. So you would say that uh, first dibs is the market leader, basically? On, I would on definitely that. say that they are the market leader. They are um, the largest out of the three websites that I mentioned. What is selling online? Well, I think that for right now, um, what people are most interested in is mid-century design. And I think that's because, and this has been this is something that's been developing for many years, and I think that's mostly because it works very well, very well with contemporary art. It's very, very hard to be a collector of contemporary art and have uh, all of the other pieces in the home 
be from the 18th and 19th century. It's just a conversation that doesn't really work. <laughs> and so I think that what ends up happening, and that's not to say that people don't buy antiques anymore. They certainly do. It's just that it tends to work better when you're purchasing art that is from, basically from that period. I've seen it done where some people are able to um, have antique furniture and contemporary art, but it's very hard to do. It takes a, like, a tremendous eye to be able to combine all these factors together. Um, but I do think that because the mid-century design market is so, uh, is so incredibly robust and is such a, such a healthy um, market, I do think that what's starting to happen is that there are certain people that are starting to get a little bit more interested in pieces, let's say, from the 80s which is not something that I saw even five years ago. I mm -hmm. think that just in the last five years, I've seen a shift of people becoming more interested in, in um, for instance, uh, you know, Carl Springer is a great example. I mean, he was, he's a, a designer that was very, very popular in the 70s and 80s. Mm -hmm. And I think that many of his pieces from, from that period are becoming more and more uh, sought after, mostly because I think that as people shifted away from the, let's say, the, the um, Scandinavian mid-century from the 40s, 50s, and 60s, that, that tends to be met, made out of wood. It tends to have a more organic feel. Mm -hmm. And then what you have with Carl Springer's, you have man-made materials, and you have a, a sort of a, more of a, a like a, a chrome-finished uh, aesthetic that I think is, is, is definitely taking off right now. Mm. And there's other designers as well. I just mentioned Carl Springer just because he has a great name and his people seem to love his designs. Um, there's others, for instance, um, Milo Boffman is another uh, designer um, who before uh, joining First Dibs in 2012, I hadn't heard really that much about. But um, what ended up happening, it was kind of like this strange phenomenon. We had so much Milo Boffman on the site on First Dibs it just sort of exploded. His market just sort of took off. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, what we're realizing is that there's many pieces out there that are actually not by Mila Boffman. And so there's sort of a, a, you know, a movement on the part of people like myself to sort of determine, well, is it really Mila Boffman or is it just attributed to him? Because mm -hmm. he's one of those designers where there's a black hole of knowledge. We're not 100% sure of every piece he designed. He was very, very prolific, and there's so much material out there, and unfortunately not enough documentation to keep up with his output. I see. So that happens when a designer works with many different uh, producers or many different parties, so that there's no continuation here. That, that is one possibility. Mm -hmm. In the case of Mila Boffman, he actually worked mostly uh, with Thayer Coggin, mm -hmm. but he did work with many manufacturers. You're mm -hmm. right, and so that is a bit of the problem. But I think he was working with man-made materials, and so unfortunately, and fortunately, there was so much production, so mm -hmm. much was put out there, and I think that he was just incredibly prolific and very creative, and just was constantly designing and having his designs uh, produced very quickly. Whereas somebody like Carl Springer, he was working more with individuals and with interior designers, and he would design the entire home. Mm -hmm. And so it would it would be a project that would maybe um, take a little bit longer and it would be more individualized. But that being said, his designs became so popular that he was able to tr use those same designs over and over and over again in different clients' homes. Mm -hmm. What's interesting about the Carl Springer archives is we, we know most of what he designed, not all of it, 
um, mostly because his showroom kept really, really good records. And so you're able to, for instance, you can buy a, a book that's you know very thick of all of the tear sheets that are that are mm -hmm. available from his studio. So um, in working with First Dibs, is it possible to say that uh, there are, I mean, are there yes. more things that are more problematic than others? Definitely, definitely. And I worked for um, First Dibs for about five years, and I would definitely say that we did see patterns. We did see certain designers that were um, more likely to be uh, imitated than others, and more um, names that unfortunately were uh, were used when there was, you know, not enough information, and something just looked like it could be, let's say, by Carl Springer. Mm -hmm. um, the name would just be thrown onto something as sort of a, a style of Carl Springer or attributed to, and essentially what happened is that's what we we consider to be now keyword spam. Because let's say the piece has zero to do with Carl Springer, but mm -hmm. his name is so heavily searched on that platform that you would get more people to look at your item if it had the name Carl Springer somewhere in the listing. So who is who is buying art and design online? I, I definitely think that it's a younger generation that mm -hmm. buys art online. And, um, and I do think that pretty much everybody buys furniture and decorative arts online now. I think that what ends up happening is that people just need an efficient solution because our lives are so busy and we do everything online. You know, more and more of what we do is, is done online. And I, and I do think that there is a younger generation that that's exclusively how they communicate with their friends and how they communicate with their family. And it just sort of is like a natural extension of that. You know, what I like to see is that people are still going to art fairs. I think art fairs are incredibly important. Um, I do think that the auction house viewings are incredibly important as well. I think that that is, really gives you a chance to see the item in person mm -hmm. and to uh, learn more about it and to discuss that piece either with other people at the fair or the people who are selling, selling the item. Um, and that way you, you're getting a little bit more assurance that something is what it is and that you don't have to worry that, oh, well, maybe maybe this isn't correct. Maybe mm -hmm. this has maybe this has some condition issues or maybe the date isn't exactly correct or maybe it's not even by this designer. Yeah. And so one of the things that um, an art advisor can do and an appraiser can do is to help people to make a determination before they buy. And sometimes that's um, incredibly helpful because it will allow you to go into a purchase very confidently and not worry at the end that, oh, wait a minute, I think I overpaid or I think that I actually bought something that is not 100% correct. What do you think explains the, the uh, sort of exponential interest in art? Is it because of accessibility and it because it's sort of tailored to our way of life, the way we use the internet and stuff like that? Or is I, there anything yes. else there that drives? I, def I definitely think it has to do with accessibility. I think that you're ago, um, people were terrified to walk into an auction house, uh, especially if it was one of the more prestigious auction houses. I think that people were nervous about asking questions at an art gallery. Um, even at the art fairs, I see that. Sort of, there's people who feel that they don't deserve to be there, for instance. But then again, there's plenty of people who uh, have, you know, they don't have to worry about that at all because it's online. It's, it's completely anonymous. They can ask whatever question they want. They can even offer whatever price they want mm -hmm. and not have to worry about getting a strange look or, you know, getting some sort of, you know, you know, obnoxious comment. Not that you would necessarily receive that at, at an art fair or an, or an auction gallery, but the, the art world for many years and to a certain extent today exists with the 
the mindset that you have to be worthy in order mm -hmm. to purchase this. You have to be somebody that we are going to, as a gallery, decide whether or not we're going to sell this to you. So it's the complete opposite of many of many other marketplaces, mm -hmm. where as long as you can, you know, buy it, it's it's yours. These are unique objects, and yeah. so the um, the art gallery owner for instance, wants to make sure that they're not going to sell something too quickly yeah. to somebody who's new to them when they could have been holding it back for a little bit longer and sell it to a seasoned collector who's been working with them for many years. So, Victoria, when you find yourself at a dinner party and the person next to you asks, uh, so what are you doing? What is your favorite story to tell a person to illustrate? Because I guess there's a lot of interesting stories that you have. I mean, there's lots of different stories that I could tell. I mean, more often than not, I think what I have noticed is that the best, of course, is when somebody has something that they had just, they had no idea that they had something that was worth as much money as mm -hmm. it was. Those are always the best. I have had situations, and I, I, I can't give names, um, <laughs> but I have had situations where we ended up um, selling something that was purchased in a garage sale for a dollar, and it oh. made, let's say, over $20,000. Oh my goodness. Um, and that's mostly because, and this was, and I'll, I can speak in general terms, that was actually um, a painting by an outsider art artist. Okay. And I think because of the relationship that the owner had with this very, very strange person that had given them this painting years ago, and the fact that, that part, the, the owner of the painting was a heavy smoker and it was covered in this sort of gray film, mm -hmm. the piece really looked like just complete garbage. Mm -hmm. And the owner of this person bought of this painting bought it at a garage sale for a dollar. Yeah. And it was something that he even haggled it down. I think it was initially they were asking. <laughs> I think they were initially asking five dollars. Oh, wow. He got it for a dollar, hey. hey. and then it was at the outsider. That should art, always be rewarded. It was at an outsider art fair. It was at some auction. I can't even remember. It was so year. It was so long ago. Mm -hmm. um, but it was just. It was just kind of fun when you see things like that happen. Um, but I do think that for the most part, that's happening less and less because I think that people with the um, the ability to research something online, mm -hmm. if you can just identify the signature on a painting, you, that's half the battle. Yeah. Um, and then you can simply plug that into various search engines and you can find out what you have. Hmm. That always is not, that's unfortunately not always enough sometimes because there's so many other variables that go into the value of a painting in terms of the size, the condition, the, um, the, uh, you know, the, the mere fact of whether or not the piece is authentic or not. I mean, mm -hmm. that's, that's of course, the, the largest issue. And that's where it becomes very, very uh, important to have the appraiser or to yeah. have an advisor work with you. Yeah, I read a book about uh, art forgery. And, and uh, it was described there that they go through and they take samples of a painting, for instance, to check out what are the pigments mm -hmm. and what are the sort of basic components of this and what kind of wood is the frame made out of. Does that happen in your world too? That you send something to like the forensic department of sorts? It has happened. Yes, um, that was uh, years ago. Um, 
in terms of furniture, um, that was something that I had to deal with when I was at um, one of the auction houses and we were trying to determine if a piece was American or European. Mm -hmm. um, and that is only something that you can determine by slicing off like a tiny matchstick sized slice of the wood mm -hmm. and sending it out for wood analysis. And then for instance, with this particular situation, we wanted to see if it came back as beach wood, then we would know that it was European. If it came back as pine, that we could be rest assured that it was American. And why was that? Um, mostly just because it was it was painted, uh -huh. and so you couldn't identify the wood grain. Uh -huh. um, it was a it was actually a um, it, it ended up being fine. It ended up we think that it was actually Canadian. It was mm -hmm. a Canadian 18th century 18th century chandelier. Okay. And we just wanted to make 100% sure that it wasn't French um, uh -huh. because it had that look of something that was um, French, <laughs> and it was fine. It was it was fine, but that's the sort of thing that we would have to do on occasion is, is send wood samples out. So that means that you have to be tough against these people yes. who are trying to sell things. Now, uh, that could be problematic, of course. Yes, it's it's not easy. I think that ultimately, at the end of the day, everybody uh, has you know respect for the fact that we all just want to keep things on the up and up. Nobody wants to deal with the hassle of a returned item. Um, nobody wants to deal with the um, you know, loss of their um, reputation. Everybody has respect for the integrity of the process mm -hmm. of determining if something is correctly identified. And I think that at the end of the day, it's uh, it really comes down to you know, if you can prove that something is correct. And this does occasionally happen where you know, we'll see, think something is incorrect, yeah. and then we'll get enough documentation from the seller to know, oh no, this was this was this is good, this mm -hmm. is this is fine, and then it's new information for us. And the um, the other thing that I was going to mention is that there's more and more documentation available online, and the website that I was thinking of before that I mm -hmm. just remembered is called Doc Antique. And okay. essentially, what they did is they took all of these vintage periodicals from the 50s and 60s, 60s, and scanned them. And so you can type in, for instance, if you wanted to look at all documented pieces by uh, the designer Jean Royer, mm -hmm. you could look at all of the documented examples that appeared in publications uh, over the years in the 50s and 60s. Why are you interested in mid-century? Have you ever thought about that? I, I don't know. I think what ended up happening is that I just I have a love for all objects. And you know, when I say a love for all objects, I mean anything that has uh, you know, an amazing appeal, either from the, the standpoint of the quality of the design or the quality of the materials. I do think, though, that what ends up happening is that the art world is very, very capricious and it's very, very cyclical. And I just, you know, when I started out in this field, people were still buying antiques in a way that they're buying mid-century design now. And mm -hmm. I, I think that over time, what sort of shifted me away from the my personal preference, I don't really love antiques the same way I used to, mostly because as tastes change, my taste changed along with it. Mm -hmm. And it just mostly has to do with the fact that uh, the the antiques world, while I do still have great respect for anything that is made beautifully and is uh, is a great example of its kind, I do think that it's a little bit fussy, it's a little bit harder to clean, it's a little bit harder to live with, it tends to be darker wood, mm -hmm. which means that it sort of absorbs light. Yeah. And I think that anything that opens up a room and is, has um, a lighter color to it 
uh, tends to make a space much more um, bright and open. Mm -hmm. And you can't really get that with antiques. Antiques tend to be much more heavy and cumbersome. Yeah. And it's, but that being said, you know, if I walk into a client's home and they have amazing antiques and they've done a really, really good, good job of placing them and mm -hmm. not having to be too cluttered, then it's just, I fall in love all over again. So what is your, your favorites? Is it possible to make like a top, uh, top three, top five list of either designers or objects or that's really is what you are or mm. what you love? Yeah, I mean, I would say that every, for each country, I have a different favorite designer. For instance, um, for Denmark, it would be Hans Wegner. Obviously, mm -hmm. that's an easy one. Uh, for um, Italian mid-century design, it would be Joe Ponti. Mm -hmm. And then with uh, French mid-century design, that's a tough one because I have so many favorites. I would probably <laughs> say for lighting, it would be Serge Mouy. Mm -hmm. And for furniture, it would be Jean Royer. One thing that intrigues me, though, so where are the Brits here? Well, they're there. Um, it's, you know what it is? Uh, in Great Britain, they had such a strong traditional furniture um, market. Um, during the Georgian period, for instance, they were just, you know, producing so much of that amazing, very, very beautiful mahogany and walnut furniture. And then, of course, in the Victorian period, they had that, again, that very, very beautiful, very ornate, um, dark, dark wood furniture. It was, it's a little bit harder, um, for, I think it was a little bit harder for them to go into the mid-century um, uh, um, design world, mostly because they were very, very steeped in their own traditions. That being said, for instance, I would say for British, I would say it would probably be um, Robin and Lucien Day, mm -hmm. which is a husband and wife team. I would say they're probably like the, the, the sort of like the equivalent of Charles and Ray Eames in mm -hmm. the United States, although less well known. Um, but they're a great example of a design couple. She focused mostly on textiles and he focused mostly on the furniture and very, very clean, beautiful lines. These are all manufactured products that he designed. Um, and then she, of course, had this very, very wonderful uh, sense of pattern and color. And so they worked really, really well together. Mm. Um, but that's that's one example. I mean, there's a, there's a few others, but I would say that I would say that really the strength of Great Britain in terms of the design, it really had to do with the contributions that they made in the um, 18th and 19th century. I see. Because if you, if you look back at, at the, the 60s uh, with the pop scene and, and uh, the fashion scene, it's interesting that it doesn't really have a, sort of yeah. a, a close uh, relationship to, to design and, and, and furniture, at least from my, from my vintage point, but maybe I'm, I'm wrong. I think, I think also, um, I think that the, um, the whole concept of your English country house, which is filled with antiques, mm -hmm. you know, that's, that's very, very much entrenched in their, their culture. Um, that being said, you know, maybe the pop design scene and pop culture scene was really more of on the side of the music industry, and that was like their rebellion against all that. Mm -hmm. I saw this great advertisement for um, Town and Country magazine in the um, in the 80s, and it was this picture of this punk rocker with this huge giant mohawk, and they're they're, they have like a, I think it was Town and Country magazine, one of those magazines, and he's holding the magazine. He was saying, oh no, this is just my mom's. <laughs> <laughs> so 
So there's definitely that sharp contrast between the youth culture yeah. in terms of fashion and music yeah. versus the more traditional home life of that's Great Britain with their traditional country house and that's filled with antiques. Okay. Where do you go to look for inspiration in your line of work? Um, well, I think that for me, at least, because I, I have a lot of clients that just require um, appraisals to be done, um, usually for um, estate tax purposes or for insurance purposes, I think that the relief that they get once they know that they have the document, that they have the appraisal, that they know what numbers are associated with their collection, um, that way they can sort of you know go forward and make decisions, you know, if they're going to keep something, if they're going to sell it. Um, if they're going to insure it, I just sort of am there to sort of be a conduit for them so mm -hmm. that they can make the next step decision. Mm -hmm. um, it's a lot of people who are empty nesters, who are downsizing, and this is just part of their process. Um, I think that for me, um, it's another great thing to see is uh, the gallery owners and the dealers that I know who are doing really, really well with, yeah. with what they're selling. That always makes me really happy to hear. And it's not, it's always surprising too. I've was just um, having lunch with um, one of the galleries that I used to work with at uh, First Dibs, and they are, you know, thrilled because they're finding out that they're doing incredibly well with antiques right now, which mm -hmm. is something they never really expected to have happen because they came into. Um, uh, the business mostly focusing on mid-century. And just the constant nature of change within the business, how things are constantly shifting and moving, it makes it, it, makes it much more interesting to, mm -hmm. um, to be a part of an industry that is on the move as opposed to something that's constantly staying still. What Artnet started out with was basically to focus on uh, collecting data and mm -hmm. statistics of prices of artists over the years, so mm -hmm. they rely on this huge database. Well, Artnet is great because they do actually have great um, information about objects that have sold as well. So it's not just fine art, it, they see. do have a whole design component. So I rely on Artnet on a regular basis. The other website that I really like, which is based in France, is called artprice.com. Mm -hmm. Um, and they have, I'd say, probably, they're more heavily focused on European mm -hmm. um, auction houses and, um, and designers. So I would say that Artnet is probably, Artnet is just enormous. They have mm -hmm. an incredible database, and I, I use them on a regular basis. Um, but then there's also other smaller um, auction houses that have their data uh, listed online. For instance, invaluable.com has mm -hmm. a great uh, database for when you're doing research uh, for uh for objects, I, I look at live auctioneers yeah. uh, as well. Um, there's some, really some great data out there, and I think that not enough people know that before mm -hmm. buying something. This may be a strange question. Uh, what is the future of mid-century art? There's a phenomenon called Instagram. And so what's essentially happening is a lot of gallery owners have their own Instagram accounts, and they're able to sell their items directly through their Instagram account. And what I've been noticing is that, uh, and I think this is very interesting, certain designers have um, archives associated with them. And those archives then are using the Instagram platform as a way to position themselves and to make it known to the world that there are archives out there. And you mm -hmm. can pay the archives to have something verified, which I definitely do recommend for certain designers. So there's this whole other microcosm of the world that's not really, it's not 
typically, it's not a typical sales platform. It's really a, just a marketing platform. And I think that it has to do with how um, well these different um, sellers and how these different archives are um, doing on their Instagram, how good their photography is, how many people they, uh, how, how many um, resources they're going to assign to that so that it becomes a bigger and bigger phenomenon. Um, and that they get more followers that way. I also think that how many um, books that are published on a particular designer, I think that has a, has a huge impact um, as well. Um, and I do think that also museum retrospectives, if, uh, for instance, a museum retrospective takes place for a certain designer, that's going to certainly put that designer more on the map. Yeah. And it's going to be, it has to do with really the success of that uh, museum exposition yeah. to see how much more interest is generated then. It's very interesting you mentioned Instagram. I saw in one article that 75% of uh, younger people uh, look at Instagram for inspiration. I find it very, very useful. I have, um, I have a lot of strange um, accounts that I follow. The, the latest one that I started to follow, which is really fun, is called Architectural Indigestion. <laughs> <laughs> I love that one. And that's basically images of what homes looked like in the 1970s and 80s. And some of them are really, really hideous. Yeah. But, you know, I might say that now, but who knows what's going to happen in 10 years. That might be what everybody's buying. That's true. You are uh, a certified appraiser. Mm -hmm. Now, if someone listened to this and said, that's a great job, I'd like to get that job. Mm -hmm. Now, how do you become that? Most people who become certified appraisers usually have worked for an auction house mm -hmm. um, or they've worked for a gallery and they take this test uh, with the Appraisers Association. And the test can be, uh, it pretty much can take all day. Um, but basically what it is, it's a way to demonstrate your expertise so that um, you can then, when you have a, an appraisal, essentially say, well, I'm a certified appraiser as opposed to a regular appraiser. Being a regular appraiser, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that, but having that certification is just demonstration that you've submitted to this very lengthy exam in your area of expertise. So that's where the triple A comes from. Appraisers Association okay. of America. That's one of them. There are other associations as well, but the largest one is the AAA. Interesting. <laughs> I learned so much about this. I, I find it fascinating. What was it like working at Christie's? Christie's is a is a great uh, is it's a great auction house. It has the incredible history, uh, having been around since the 18th century. Um, I do think that um, the auction houses uh, have really a very difficult job. I think that there's so much competition for such a small amount of material, and I do think that uh, what ends up happening um, with the auction houses, and at least this was my experience when I was there, that it was. Uh, very, very competitive. Mm -hmm. It came about, came down to, well, who's going to get it? Is it going to be Sotheby's or Christie's? And it was just always that back and forth between the two auction houses. Mm -hmm. So it was a very, very, um, it was a very, very uh, dynamic place to work. There were just some amazing people that I worked with that had incredible expertise, um, and I was, I was thrilled to work there for the number of years that I did work there. Mm -hmm. um, that being said, I do think that. Um, the e-commerce world has a much, I think there's much more diversity in yeah. the e-commerce world. Um, I think that the auction houses, what they're deciding to do is sort of pare down and make themselves even more lean and mean and yeah. focused on just, just the high end. That's all they want to look at all day. 
Um, so what, of course, that means is when an estate takes place, when yeah. there's a, a large estate, they have to figure out how to get that one really important million dollar picture, and then what do you do with everything else that's yeah. not at that million dollar level? Because usually that's the way it is. People mm -hmm. have one important piece, and then the rest is sort of low end. Yeah. Um, and that's typically where a dealer might come in, and they will buy the entire contents of the estate. Hmm. So when you have a conflict here, the auction house sold it, and it was a fake there's a statute of limitations for the auction houses so that um, if something turns out to be incorrect, mm -hmm. um, there's only a limited number of years that you can then go back to the auction house and say, hey, I have this, and it turns out it's wrong. Um, very often what they will do... Um, and they will repay, refund you? Or? They will buy it back. Oh. And then it'll go back into the auction as the property of the auction house. For the same price as you bought it? No, it'll sell for less. Oh. That's, just, that's just what happens, unfortunately. Mm. Um, and so, of course, there's that. That does certainly happen. Um, but very often what then happens, too, is that, you know, it's just determined that um, the piece is... Uh, not what we thought it was, um, and that, that the only reason we know that is because the scholarship on that item has, has evolved over time. Mm -hmm. It could have been that at the time when something was sold, it was 100% correctly described based on the limited knowledge that we had. Then as new information arises, for instance, if the archives comes forward and says, hey, guess what? You know, this designer never created that. Mm -hmm. And we have proof to determine that it's not by this no. designer because it doesn't appear anywhere in our archives, nowhere in our records. That's an example of the scholarship has evolved. The archives mm -hmm. have stepped forward and they've said, well, no, it's, it's wrong. I have to thank you. Oh, well, thank yeah. you. It thank was you a for having me. Wonderful Friday afternoon. Yeah, great. Talking about art, antiques, and design with uh, the expert, Victoria. Great. Thank you so much thank you. for this. Okay. This is Art Insiders New York, and my name is Anders Holst. Thank you for listening, and be sure to visit artinsidersnewyork.com to join the conversation. If you enjoyed this episode of the Art Insiders New York podcast, head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It's very much appreciated. Thank you. This episode was produced by UOM, LLC, copyright 2019.